The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Our scripture reading for this morning is a selection of passages from Esther 8 and 9. 9 and 10, sorry. Gosh. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to them, to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshadantha and Dolphin, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Bezatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And then skipping down to verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75 of those who hated them but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a gift, as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And then skipping down to verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons. As Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced them, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. You may be seated. There's no children's church at this service, but if you're interested, please join us at the 930 service where we have children's church every week. Thank you, Kendall. I feel like I should tip her extra for reading that passage. Um, We're so glad that you're here. If this is your first time, my name is Jared. I'm on staff here at Restoration Southside. 
just before we dive in, I want to clarify a couple of things. One has to do with the passage and one does not. The thing that does not have to do with the passage is we don't want, uh, we want you to come as you are. We do want you to come as you are. And that means that some of you grew up in a tradition that if you don't raise your hands and lay your body sway, then you're not very spiritual. And so you sort of learn to resent that and you connect with the Holy Spirit and God more by being quiet and internal. Uh, it's sort of you can focus more uh, by the quietness of your body and we want you to feel welcome. We want you to connect with God in the way that uh, is most meaningful and powerful for you. There are some who grow up as frozen chosen and you're a little weary of not having a more whole body experience in worship and so you'd feel more comfortable raising your hands and lifting your voices and we want you to feel comfortable here too. We just don't want you to feel self-conscious that this is one kind of church or another. You are welcome here in the traditions that you use with your body to connect with God. And so we just I just want to free you to be who you are in this room, come as you are. The thing that I want to point out to you about this text is that we've been working our way through Esther, and we come to the end of our study here in Esther 9 and 10, and this last passage is basically about how everything scary that was going to happen from Esther 1, where the Jews were going to be killed by Haman, and they were going to be slaughtered and annihilated, is finally undone, and now the Jews have some power and some property, and in fact, they can defend themselves. God has taken something and reversed it all the way back through. What I want you to think about as we study this is that I want you to think about the things from your past. And maybe even for some of you, it's the things in your present. Now, it could be sin or it could be pain. But this thing that you hold on to and think, God could not possibly do good through this. God could not possibly redeem this story. God could not possibly redeem or restore this wound. He couldn't possibly do it. He couldn't bring good out of something like this. This passage sort of dares us to step back with things that we've done wrong. Should we see that with Esther and Mordecai? With things that we've done wrong and with the pain in our lives. And to think the bad things may not be all bad. The bad things may not be all bad. And this passage invites us to consider that. So if you would, would you join me in prayer? And we will uh, ask God to bless our study of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your Word and your Holy Spirit. And I ask you that you would move among us. We are so prone to come to church because we need something, uh, but to go away disappointed because we've really only encountered ourselves and our distraction. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit? We long to be transformed. We long to be people of hope, people of holiness. But we're so discouraged and so shamed and so addicted that sometimes we can barely lift our chin. Would you breathe new life onto us and into us so that we can go be a people who breathes life into others? God, we need your help. And I ask that you would graciously, powerfully move this morning. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Some of my dearest friends are the Perkins. You may know them. Kelly runs the nursery here and children's ministry at Restoration Southside. And Chris is one of our, uh, our, our leaders here. And we, they have three kiddos. You may know Mackenzie and Emma and Caden. What you may not know about Chris and Kelly is that it was difficult for them. Even though they wanted to have a child, they, they could not. And that was so heartbreaking for them. It was as if a dream that they had always had was deferred. Something that they longed to be and now it was taken from them. It would have been tempting to believe that there's this thing that we want so much that we care about so much and not get it. And so there's no way of transforming or restoring our story. There's no way to take this bad thing and make it good. God moved in their heart and they faithfully obeyed to adopt three children. Mackenzie, Emma, and Caden. Those three children growing up in the church, growing up having a family and parents who loved them and walked alongside them and encouraged them. And now those three children are young adults and they serve in this church more frequently than my own children do. Uh oh, <laughs> I offended some little person. Can you imagine? From the dark days of pleading with God, beating their chests, begging for Him to work and to work and to answer this prayer so that God they could have something good, and God not answering that particular prayer, but instead transforming that wound into something larger and, and even more beautiful. That not only that they would have children, but that their children would be brought into this family, that their children would serve in this church. The reason that I tell you that story, I remind you of them, is to tell you the very things in your life that you have decided are the bad news. The ugly part. The messed up part. The very things that you've decided good can't come from. There may be good around it. There may be good past it. But good can't come from this. I'd encourage you to step back. Think of the Perkins. Think of Esther and Mordecai. This edict for them to die has now become an edict in which they will be given power and possession and that the life of Israel can move forward. I want you to think about that in your story. What are the places of sin and shame that you have said, whatever happens from here on out, no good can come from this. And what are the places of pain which have been so excruciating and so distracting where you've decided no good can come from this? The Lord might have a different word for us this morning. Now, a couple of things before we dive in. It's really important to put this passage in context because there are some of us that don't yet know the Lord and in this room, and, and we're so glad that they're here. That's actually the reason why we planted this church. Or some who have been so burned by the church, they promised themselves they'd never be vulnerable again. And when they read a passage like this, it's confusing why a good God would allow so much violence to occur. But I want to put it in context before we dive in. First of all, hear me say this. 
this text in no way supports the use of violence for kingdom ministry. This text in no way supports the use of violence for kingdom ministry. It's a different moment in redemptive history. It's a different season in redemptive history. That means that you can't flatten out the Bible and treat each portion of it the same and apply it the same way. It's a different moment in redemptive history. Anyone who tries to use this as a text which supports kingdom violence is short-sighted, unstudied, out of context, and sinful. Now the Jews wipe out their enemies. You see that in verse 5 and verse 16. But again, let me point out three things quickly for you. Remember that God's people were about to be annihilated, wiped off the face of the earth. This is this in 3.13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. That means there would be no more God's people in this Medes and the Persians empire. God's people are about to be annihilated. Also remember in this point in redemptive history, this is an old fight that God didn't start. Haman is one of the family of Amalekites, and Amalekites are the ones who tried to rout God's people as soon as they were entering into the promised land having crossed the Red Sea. Meaning these tired slaves from 400 years, they're hungry and they're thirsty and they've finally been rescued by God's people and the Amalekites think this is the perfect time to destroy them. The Amalekites picked this fight. God didn't start it. And then remember that this edict in particular is an edict of protection. It's not one of just senseless violence. It's not callously to kill everyone. This is what it says. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them, their women and their children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. You see... This is a certain time in redemptive history. You see that this was an edict that was supposed to protect God's people, not bring about senseless violence. This is an old fight that God didn't start. And God's people were about to be wiped off the map. So when we read a text that is difficult and difficult for us to understand in its context, it's important that we do the work to understand how it applied then and how it would apply now. This does not prompt or promote violence. But as we mentioned earlier, this story is the story of reversal. Remember, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways that king had honored him, and now he had elevated him above all other nobles and officials. And not all, Haman adds, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Haman brags about his position and his power and his sons and his success. And God's people are in critical danger. And now all of that has been overthrown. Haman's stuff belongs to Esther. Haman's power belongs to Mordecai. Haman's line, which was going to be one of succession, is now unsafe and destroyed, and the Jews' line is safe and will be protected. 
Haman was second in charge. Now Mordecai is second in charge. There's a couple of things I want you to see in this. First of all, to obey even when ancestors did not obey. To obey even when ancestors did not obey. This story actually goes all the way back to Saul. Like King Saul and King David. King Saul was supposed to kill all the Amalekites. God saw that the Amalekites had tried to rout his people when they were vulnerable and just coming out of Egypt. God saw that the Amalekites were going to continue to go after the Israelites over and over again. And so God said to Saul, wipe them out and don't take plunder. This is a a victory about the fact that I am your God and I will care for my people and I will take care of your enemies. Wipe them out and don't take plunder. And instead, Saul does not wipe them out and does take plunder to the Amalekites. You see how even in this, there's this small theme of reversal. Saul didn't obey. And now here, God's people, it says it three times. They are even allowed to take the plunder, but it says they defended themselves. They killed those that were coming after, and they did not take the plunder. They did not take the plunder. They did not take the plunder. Sometimes when others in our history fail, it's tempting for us to say, it doesn't matter. Others didn't get this right. We're just in a long line of those who didn't get it right. It doesn't really matter. As if their disobedience somehow makes our disobedience less shocking. We as Christians, in this moment of history, in this particular country, we have to be the people that speak up in ways that our ancestors did not speak up. We have to be be comfortable obeying God in ways that those before us did not obey God. It's not okay for us to get something wrong by Jesus just because others have done it so many times before. It causes us and calls us to obey even when things are difficult. How are we going to live differently than those before us have lived? How are we going to speak up differently in ways that those before us have not? How are we going to honor God above our reputation, even when others before us did not. That's one of the ways that I want you to think through this, is that our obedience obedience is called upon, even when those who have gone before us have disobeyed. But I also want you to see this, that it's it's foolish to be an enemy of God's people. It's foolish to be an enemy of God's people. If you're one of God's, and you're being messed with or oppressed by sin, by your flesh, by the world, by the devil, God takes it very seriously when His people are oppressed. Jesus will be your champion and your advocate. For those of you who are wounded, I'm so sorry that you're hurting, but take comfort in knowing that those who wounded you, those who wounded you, will either be paid for by Jesus or punished by Jesus. If your back is against the wall, but you're on God's side, you are never without hope because God will keep His word. You see these 
reversals over and over again. Esther's a nobody, now she's a queen. Mordecai is secretly uh, hiding in the king's gate, and now he's the second in all command. The Jews have nothing, and now there are people to be feared. Do you see how the reversals happen over and over again? The thing of which should cause embarrassment or pain or danger is actually the, the lens in which God brings transformation. Some of you have heard me tell the story. I was at a men's retreat, and there was about 100 people in the room, and there was a guy giving his testimony about how pornography and and sexual sin had wrecked him and how it had been so difficult and so discouraging. And yet how God, even through that, had, had brought some healing and deepened his dependence on Jesus and, and brought some authenticity and healing to his marriage. And, and I couldn't believe it as I looked at a man talking about something that so many of us are so shamed about. There's a hundred people in the room and all the eyes are glued to him. And I thought only the gospel could do this. This thing that I'm sure there were nights where the man thought, I'm so alone, I'm so messed up, I'm so broken because of this thing. And now this thing was the very lens to bring healing to a hundred dudes sitting there struggling with the same thing. You see, what the devil told him was bad and awful and sinful and to be hidden, God said, yes, even this can be used for the flourishing of others. And I want you to think about that in your own life. What are the things that you have decided upon? This is bad and it's going to stay bad. And whether it's sin or whether it's pain, God invites us through this story to step back and say, it may be bad, but maybe it's not all bad. Maybe I just haven't seen where the, the story goes. Because God's Word can be trusted. He says, I'm with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I have plans to bless you, to prosper you, to give you a future. I will give you my spirit, and I will come back for you. So maybe he knows what he's doing. Maybe the very thing in your life which you are so embarrassed is there, he's leaving there on purpose. To deepen your faith, and to teach you more of his grace. Now, I want to be careful here, pastorally speaking. When you're ministering to each other and someone's telling you about some very, very hard or shameful thing, I don't want you to stop them and go, it's totally okay that you've already been through this. In fact, it's awesome, this horrible tragedy that you've experienced, because God is going to use this. That's not what I'm saying. You can hold something biblically in your heart to form who you are as one of God's people and not bash people over the head with it. But what I'm telling you as wise Christians to step back and believe for other people, even when it's hard for them to believe that the thing they think is bad isn't all bad. Because God will not forget us. He does not forget Esther. He does not forget Mordecai. He does not forget God's people who are in their city of Susa, he does not forget God's people who are spread out all over the Medes and the Persian Empire. God's word can be trusted. This shows up most powerfully in the cross. You see, Esther, we've told you this before, but Esther is really pointing us to a better Esther in Jesus. Esther's fear and going before the king is actually pointing us to a real cross where Jesus is supposed to be the end of Jesus at the cross. 
Rome, Pontius Pilate, the high priests, the Pharisees, they all gather and celebrate the fact that this is the end of Jesus of Nazareth. No more teachings that we're not comfortable with. No more all these people following Him. No more voice from this man because instead we'll give Him the cross. Do you see the reversal? The very thing they thought would silence Him is the very testimony that lives in you now. The cross was supposed to be the end of the reign of Jesus and it's actually, most powerfully, His inauguration. Death was supposed to be the end of the story and now it's the entrance into life. Do you understand that? If you're trusting in Jesus, death, the thing that everyone and all mankind from every age is afraid of, what's true, what is certain in life, death and taxes. And everyone's supposed to be afraid of. Philosophers and artists and people from every... I don't know what comes next. And for the Christian who puts their trust in Christ, death is the good news that you finally get to go home to your Savior. He has transformed even something so ugly to bring life. And what I'm telling you is if He can do that with something so massive, so colossal as the cross and the undoing of evil, the undoing of Satan, how much more so is He up for the task of transforming your smaller crosses and your smaller wounds? The scene that this reminds me of is if if you've seen the Passion, Passion is sort of the cinematic retelling of Jesus in his final week of his life. It's a movie from several years ago. And there are parts of the movie that come straight off the pages of Scripture. And there are parts of the movie that have been embellished or have been sort of, they're apocryphal, meaning that they have some truth in them, but it's not a story right out of Scripture. And this one scene, which is apocryphal, it didn't, it didn't happen, at least as they say it happened in the movie, but has truth in it, has meaning in it, is this scene where Jesus has been flogged and He's so bloody and battered you can barely recognize that it's still Him. And now after He's been flogged, which is this horrific scene, they give Him His cross and He's marching through the city so that He can go outside to Golgotha and be hung on His own cross. And as He's marching through the, the pain... And losing the blood causes his legs to give out. And as he's falling, he falls. And his mother Mary has been sort of quietly tracking him through the city, following him, trying to get close enough for him to see her, but not for her to be caught. And finally, Jesus buckles under the weight of the cross and he falls and is bloody and he's messy. And his mother gets her face down near his and looks him in the eye. And it's this moment, you think, where there's it's just too much negative. It's too much ugly. It's too much broken. They, take, they took the good one, and now they've killed him. And now his mother has to watch it happen. And it's just so sad, it'll almost overtake you. And then as his mother's crying and looking in his eyes, he looks at Jesus, and he's, he looks at her right back and says, You see, Mama, I am making all things new. The sense that He could even take death, He could take crucifixion, a cross, He could take sin that He'll bear for them in just a few minutes, and He could make all things new through death. And what I want you to consider is maybe, maybe this marriage that is so difficult for you, that is so much 
harder than you imagine. Maybe he's going to bring life through that. Maybe you're wanting to have kids and can't have kids. Maybe he's going to bring life through that. Maybe you're fighting this sin and losing all the time. Someday, ultimately, he's going to bring life through that. It's, it's zooming out enough to know that God will do what he wants to do and he will keep his word. He says, see, I'm making all things new. Friends, that's what I want you to live out of. Esther, at any moment in this 10-chapter book, could have said, I'm in trouble and I'm scared and I have to stop. You see, I'm a Jew. And there's been an edict and now no good will come from this. And Mordecai could have done the same. And there are parts in your story, whether pain or in sin, where you could stop and say, no more good can come from this. And what I'm asking you to do is to remember the Savior has said, see, I am making all things new, and to ask you to consider that the thing in your life which might cause you the most shame or embarrassment, might cause you the single most excruciating difficulty that you've ever experienced, might be the very thing that He uses to make all things new. And He did it because He loves you. God knows right where you're at right now. He knows what you're bearing. Loneliness and discouragement, anxiety and depression, addiction. He knows what you're bearing. And He says, even that thing, I'm going to take it and I'm going to use it to bless you and bless others. And the reason that the Father can do this is because here in the story of Esther, the Jews get a break. The Jews are rescued. Not so for Jesus. God uses Esther and Mordecai to rescue the Jews. And the Jews get off. And they start to celebrate. They have this, this festival that they'll celebrate every single year. And it says, remember, remember when God did this. Remember when God did this. And that's so encouraging in the Bible when God says, remember, 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 because he, it means He knows that we forget. When you sit here and you sing a song and lift your voice and walk out of this place and you're like, oh yeah, I'm totally not going to do that sin anymore. I'm going to live a transformed life. Get ready for me to read the Bible every day for the next 365 days. And then an hour later, you fall into sin. He knows that we forget. He knows that the rescue for us needed to be more profound than the rescue for Israel. And so instead of rescuing us in the same way, He rescued us by condemning to death His Son. He knew that we would go on and sin, and He knew that the way to rescue us from that is to have someone who would not sin and then take our sin on Himself. The pastor gave me the idea for this story. Each night I bless the kids with the benediction, meaning after I've, I've put them down, I've read two books to them, I've given them water, I've let them get out of bed for the 15th time and then come back and make up another excuse each time. When it's finally over, I'll lay them down, I'll put my hand on their head, and I'll say, 
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance over you and give you peace. It's this blessing from the Bible that I often give to y'all, this, this sense of God is with you no matter what happens in your story, and I pour that on you. But friends, because of our sin, because of Christ, that's not what Jesus heard. Jesus heard, the Lord curse you and abandon you. The Lord make His face turn away from you and pour out His wrath towards you. The Lord turn His scowl upon you and give you unrest. That's what Jesus heard. So that our rescue would not just be one as ones who were rescued but then would make mistakes ongoingly and be in trouble again, but so that Jesus would take our curse forever so that we could get His blessing. So when you experience the curses of your life, I want you to consider that Jesus has ultimately taken the curse so powerfully into his death, into his personhood, that there isn't any curse left over for you. So the only part of your job now is to figure out how and where he's blessing you through your sin and through your suffering so that you can go and bless others. Jesus didn't get to hear that, but you do. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance over you and give you peace. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, there are those in this room who are bearing such brutal burdens. Would you for one second give them the sense by your Holy Spirit that even such things as these, you're going to restore them. You're going to bring them hope and healing. And there are those of us in this room who are so beaten down by our sin, pride, our greed and our envy and our lust, anger. So beaten down, we think that you couldn't possibly still love us. I pray that you'll remind both sets of us. You're a master at bringing light out of dark, good out of evil, hope out of despair. Would you give us the trust to believe that and live out of it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.